1: And welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And today I want to talk a little bit about some of the consequences of the post-war, post-First World War uh, peace treaties, particularly those conducted with um, the uh, Ottoman Empire. Um, and I want to uh, look at the causes of the um, destruction of the city of Smyrna. Um, and I'm going to talk about this over a, a couple of episodes uh, because um, looking at the uh, destruction of Smyrna and the um, sort of genocidal uh, war waged upon Christians within the oh, Ottoman Empire um, is, is is really instructive um, for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, and I'm going to be looking at um, an excellent book that I've um, Read from before The Vanquished by Robert Gerweth. Firstly, the idea that conflict ended in 1918 uh, is a bit of a kind of a a Western centric uh, sort of conceit, really. Conflict in 1918 didn't end in Russia. It didn't end in the Ottoman Empire. It didn't end in Greece. It didn't end for the most part in Germany, um, and most of the uh, most of the the eastern part of um, the uh, of Europe and the Middle Eastern, Near Eastern uh, parts of the world that were engulfed by the First World War continue to see uh, endless violence. Um, the victorious powers are the ones who are able to bring the fighting to an end um, in in their territories. So, for example, France, Belgium, um, and obviously the uh, countries like America, Great Britain, Canada, um, those uh, Australia, those participants who who simply sent armies to Europe but didn't actually have fighting on their own territories. They, of course are able to um, withdraw, uh, for the most part, from Europe once the fighting has ended. But it's the vanquished powers. The chaos that is unleashed in the Habsburg, Ottoman, uh, Germans, Hohenzollern and Romanov empires at the end of the war um, echoes on for at least another half decade. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the consequences of the um, end of um, the First World War uh, for the Ant- Ottoman Empire, and particularly what the consequences were for uh, Italy's abortive interests in acquiring Ottoman territory. So, Robert Gerwith writes, Italy's imperial ambitions after 1918 went beyond Fiume you may, obviously, now in modern-day Croatia, was a city on the Dalmatian coast where there were significant numbers of ethnic Italians and that uh, the Italian nationalists had a long-term uh, claim over. Um, later, uh, the fascist Gabriele D'Annunzio tried to seize the city and managed to occupy it until 1920 and then was expelled. The London Treaty of 1915 had made vague promises about a just share of the Ottoman Empire for Rome. Should the empire be dismantled at the end of the war, in early May 1919, to make clear that these promises had not been forgotten, Italian troops, uh, Italians um, landed troops at the ports of um, Adalia uh, and Mamaris in southern Anatolia, without consulting their allies. There were also rumors of, uh, in Paris, of Italian vessels approaching Smyrna, the heavily Christian. Populated port on the western Anatolian coast that was also being claimed by Greece. Now, um, Italy came into the war in 1915, as mentioned at the Treaty of London, and was uh, promised significant spoils from the war. By the time you get to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, uh, the British, the French and the Americans all agree that uh, the Italians' contribution to the war was fairly derisory, which isn't actually true in terms of lives lost and uh, casualties endured. The Italians suffered enormously during the war. Um, In terms of actual practical um, contributions, they were um, uh, less than glorious. Um, But the Italians always had uh, a sense of um, suspicion about the British and the French, that they wouldn't um, uh, deliver on their promises. And very quickly, the Italians um, tried to uh, occupy as much territory as they possibly could do um, in order to make sure that the, the facts on the ground changed. And so, once the facts on the ground changed, once troops were in places in, uh, were were in in place in Greek islands and things like that, and parts of Anatolia, then the peacemakers. um, This was at the in in May nineteen nineteen. This was at the height of the the peace conference, just as Italy was about to uh, kind of remove itself from the uh, the peacemakers, the uh, Supreme uh, um, Allied Council. Um the uh having troops on the ground would put immense pressure it was believed um on on the peacemakers um, on the sixth of May. Lloyd George uh, said that um in order to end Italy's aspirations in Asia Minor, Greece should be allowed to occupy Smyrna and all the areas around it. Woodrow Wilson, who would normally not have been uh, very keen on imperial land grabbing, um, approved, he agreed, um, and he uh, wanted really to show the uh, Italian government, who were irritating him, um, who was boss. The um, Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson both agreed that a united Yugoslavia was a much more important country to hold the Balkans together and to create a kind of a bulwark against possible Bolshevik expansion towards the Mediterranean than a larger Italy. And so they were, they were not receptive to Italian demands for territory and very receptive to uh, a merging of the Croat and Serbian states into a, a, U- uh, a kingdom of Yugoslavia. Lloyd George summoned the Greek Prime Minister Venezuelos um, to um, instruct him to prepare for a landing at Smyrna. Venezuelos was um, somebody who Lloyd George admired, um, and Lloyd George, uh, who liked to think in very kind of classical terms, saw this as the possible recreation of the Byzantine Empire. Um, and this would have close links to London. It would be. Um, a, a kind of a, a greater Greece, uh, and it's interesting that um, this idea of looking at classicism, much as Italian fascists did, much as Nazis did, and trying to draw lessons from antiquity and bring them into the present, that was um, key in some of uh, Lloyd George's wilder imaginings. Um the thing about Venizelos is that he was it kind of fitted the bill very neatly. He was um, a former Ottoman subject. He had been born in Crete in 1864 and was uh, part of the, uh, the Greek bourgeoisie that was forced to flee Crete uh, to mainland Greece um, in 1886 when uh, there was a, an insurrection in Crete and the Ottomans were forced out. Um, he was, like Lloyd George... Uh, a lawyer, um, and had founded um, the, the Greek Liberal Party and been part of um, the movement for Greece to join the Allies uh, since 1914, uh, which had brought him into direct conflict with King Constantine I, who had been a Germanophile and had spent uh, grown up in uh, Germany and was married to Sophia of Prussia, who was the sister of Kaiser Wilhelm II. And as you... you Probably may know there's a long and complicated history between the Greek and German royal families, culminating in um, our very own Philip Mountbatten, um, the uh, heir to the uh, husband of Queen Elizabeth II. Constantine hadn't made any secret of his uh, affection for Germany. Um, he advocated neutrality for his country when hostilities began, uh, but in defiance of this, uh, Venizelos um, invited the British and French to send armies to Greece um, and to sue the port of Salonica, um, and this led to Venizelos' dismissal. And in 1916, um, the king actually invited the Germans and Bulgarians uh, into eastern Macedonia and Thrace, opening at Greece as a, a front line in the war the uh, Venizelos had publicly denounced the king and um, held a mass rally in Athens in August 1916 um, and two rival governments were eventually formed a royalist rival government under Constantine um, and a republican government uh, under Venizelos um, and the country was divided between Athens and Salonica. Um, Venizelos basically triumphed in this power struggle Um, when the Allies blockaded southern Greece, uh, which caused immense hardship and hunger um, for the Greeks. Um, And Constantine was uh, replaced in June 1917 by his younger brother Alexander, who'd been the Allies' long-term choice anyway. So long before um, Lloyd George is instructing or um, encouraging Venizelos in order to to seize Smyrna um, and to expand Greek territory and to put him directly in in, in conflict with a revanchist, resurgent, nationalist um, Republic of Turkey. The British had been interfering in Greek politics um, in a very deep and kind of um, uh, powerful way during the war. Ensuring that the right kind of leaders uh, were in place, and that Germanophiles were shunted to the side, and Anglophiles were brought to to the front in the um, in the example of um, King Alexander, um, and this paved the way for Venizelos' ability to return to Athens, um, and for uh, Greece's. Uh, full participation in the war against the Central Powers. So it was a a, a great coup as far as Lloyd George uh, was concerned. But following the victory of the the, um, Allied Powers over the Central Powers, Venizelos now expected to be rewarded, much as the Italians had expected to be rewarded. And Lloyd George assured him um, that a Greek conquest of Smyrna would not be opposed by the other victorious states. Um, So Venezuelos had every reason to believe that he had the complete backing of the British on this subject. Um, So uh, Robert Gerworth writes, however, Venezuelos ignored the stern warning of Field Marshal Henry Wilson, who, also present at the meeting, uh, said that the occupation of Smyrna would result in another war with an uncertain outcome as the Turkish army was beaten but not altogether destroyed. This assessment was echoed by Lord Curzon, Arthur Balfour's right-hand man in the Foreign Office, who sent several memoranda warning the uh, the Greek Prime Minister not to underestimate the ability of Turkish troops to remobilise against an external threat. This was Turkish territory. And um, the Turks who had been defeated in the First World War and seen uh, in the post-war peace treaties their empire dismembered, were not willing um, to simply sit by and watch the Greeks, who they had long-standing enmity with, um, swallow up um, Ottoman territory, or former Ottoman territory.
0: Go to Bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: Turkish territory now. Wilson and Curzon, um, Gerwith writes, uh, were not the only senior strategists who strongly objected to the idea of a Greek occupation of Smyrna. When Venizelos had first contemplated the idea of joining the Entente in exchange for extensive territorial gains in Anatolia in 1915, he sought the advice of Colonel Yanis Metaxas, one of the military masterminds behind Greece's success in the First Balkan War of 1912 and the country's future military dictator between 1936 and 1941. Metaxas' response was not what Venezuela had hoped for, he emphasised that the coastal areas inhabited by Ottoman Greeks were not really defensible. The envisaged occupation area contained a large number of Muslims who might rise up against foreign rule. While the fertile valleys of western Anatolia were dangerously exposed to any Turkish counter-attack and from the Anatolian hinterland, any invasion Could easily lead to something similar to Napoleon's disastrous campaign in Russia, as Turkish defenders would surely attempt to lure their attackers into the interior of central Anatolia with its extreme climate both in summer and winter. So, Venizelos chose to ignore these warnings. Here was a politician who had been fated by the Allies, who had been encouraged by Lloyd George, and who believed he had the go ahead and the backing. Of the British, certainly, Lloyd George approved of the scheme, and one of Lloyd George's abiding obsessions, just throughout the First World War, is a deep hatred of the Ottoman Empire, um, and many of his his decisions um, were motivated by that. There was a schism in the War Cabinet between those uh, ministers and um, generals who referred to themselves as Westerners. They thought the war could be won on the Western Front. And there were the likes of Lloyd George and Churchill, particularly, who believed up until 1916 that the war could be won potentially in the East by breaking the Ottoman Empire and taking a route through the Balkans, perhaps, into the heart of the Habsburg Empire. Um, So the um, dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire... Wasn't a secondary issue for Lloyd George. This was a key war objective, um, and something that he viewed as kind of the work of an upstanding Christian um, and um, somebody who uh, saw it as uh, integral to uh, the establishment or the the the, the, savior, the, the rescuing of civilization. The, if you read Robert Fisk's uh, amazing book, *The Great War for Civilization*, which is his biography. Of um, war reporting in the Middle East, he refers to the med- the The uh, title of the book refers to the medal that is the first the the uh, the medal that his father was given at the end of the First World War. I think it's just called the Great War Medal, and on the back of it, it says the Great War for Civilization. And um, the British used this theme of civilization, defending civilization, or defending the civilization that they had created via their empire um incessantly that this was the motivation for the war. When you get um figures during the last five years commemorating the First World War, uh particularly the British political figures saying this was a, a war for democracy, well it's nothing of the sort really. There were and up until nineteen eighteen, nobody is talking in those terms whatsoever. Um and in and the reality was that most of the um uh, most of the, the soldiers who volunteered feel felt that they were fighting for some kind of civilization, some kind of civilized values. But, you know, you find that in recruiting stations all over Europe. So all of those who were on the winning side in nineteen eighteen, um Venezuelos similar to all of them, uh, believed that a great historical opportunity to reshape the world had opened up and reshape part of the world in Greek interests had uh, opened up. Quite a hard-headed realist. He uh, believed that um, the recreation of some Greek Mediterranean uh, empire was possible, was within his, uh, his reach. Goethe writes, the Megali idea, the great idea of Greek territorial expansion into Asia Minor Reuniting the mainland with the various irredentist populations under Ottoman rule had been a prominent recurrent theme in Greek political discourse ever since the revolution of 1843, which had led to the establishment of an independent constitutional monarchy. Since then, the constant expansion of Greece's borders and the gradual assimilation of previously irredentist Greek minorities within the nation state had created high expectations for the future inclusion. Of the sizeable Orthodox minority within the Ottoman Empire, largely concentrated on the western and northern Anatolian coastline and its hinterland, as well as in the Pontus of the southern shore of the Black Sea. So it's fascinating, isn't it? Much of the rhetoric that Hitler uh, comes out with in, in uh, up and to Mein Kampf and beyond. Was this idea that the, the as a kind of a German diaspora scattered across Europe should be brought under one banner? Not that they should be repatriated from parts of Russia, Poland, and Czechoslovakia, but Russian, but but German borders should expand to incorporate them, and then expel or exterminate um, non-Germans in, in that area. So there seems to be something uh, germane to uh, nationalist figures. I'm not for a moment equating Venezuela to Hitler at all um, in terms of their, their overall outlook. But the, the, um, the, the political figures who um, were concerned with national rejuvenatory, and national resurgence projects and imperial projects um, across Europe and there are numerous examples of them, saw this idea of bringing the diaspora under one banner as as a really key part of that. Uh, And it tells you perhaps something about the nature of um, early 20th century nationalism um, in that regard. Um, So the Greek Orthodox community that stretched all the way back to the Byzantine uh, era, uh, to the the Middle Ages, had grown uh, sort of expansively in the 19th century, um, when an economic boom uh, in and around Smyrna drew large numbers of penniless immigrants from mainland Greece and the islands of the eastern Aegean, they had traveled to Smyrna and populated it because it made economic sense to do so, um, although this trend had uh, reversed itself um, due to kind of tensions ethnic tensions in the wake of the first Balkan War. The Greek Orthodox population of Smyrna in 1914 stood at 200,000. Out of a total population of 350,000, the Pontian Greeks also formed a sizable community, notably in and around the Black Sea cities of Samson, Tra- uh, Trabzon, um, and uh, they never uh, constituted a majority in the predominantly Muslim populated areas. So, as far as Smyrna goes, there was... Uh, some justification in Venezuela's eyes um, that uh, seizing Smyrna uh, made sense. That demographically it made sense. That that is where um, the, the there were Orthodox Greeks waiting to be liberated, and that there was some sort of justification. So um, just after a week, just a week after the conversation with Lloyd George uh, on the fifteenth of May, Greek invasion troops arrived in Smyrna by boat, um, sparking excitement uh, among the Christian population and outrage among Muslims, some of whom spontaneously founded the National Committee of Refusal of the Annexation, calling on the Turkish population to resist the invaders. So here you have this um, hugely tolerant city, this city that was known for its um, interrelated communities, that was known for um, the uh, peaceful coexistence of uh, Christians, Jews, uh, Muslims and others, um, who, uh, whereby um, the annexation of it by Greece suddenly throws divisions between those communities, suddenly starts to polarise the city and prepare it for the tragedy to come. So violence didn't take long to uh, occur, When Greek troops uh, marched into the city, a shot was fired on them by a Turkish refugee from Salonika, and the Greek troops responded by storming the nearby Turkish barracks, arresting soldiers inside and force-marching them down towards the harbour, a procession during which the prisoners were made to go through no end of humiliation, um, as a Smyrna-based British businessman recalled. As one of the prisoners fell out of line, he was bayoneted to death, a murder that was followed by several others. British officers in the harbour reported that uh, they witnessed several bodies um, of uh, killed Turks being thrown into the sea. Local Greek thugs and gangs of nationalists took their cue from the behaviour of the soldiers. Recalling the suppression of Ottoman Christians during the war, they started a riot in the Turkish quarter, killing, maiming, looting and raping at will. In the chaos throughout the day, between 300 and 400 Muslim civilians and soldiers were killed. The Greek troops suffered just two casualties. During the imposition of martial law uh, and, the Greek, um, and the Greek military commander's public appeal um, to respect the personal freedom and the religious beliefs of your Muslim fellow countrymen, violence continued unabated, notably in the, areas, the rural areas around the Erythria Peninsula, uh, where, during the war, many Christian inhabitants of the region had been deported. So we're going to finish that, and then we're going to look at the um, fate of Smyrna during the uh, Greek-Turkish war um, that was to follow. So just to kind of focus a little bit on um, the uh, the kind of the theme here. What we see is that the, the kind of the, the imperial manoeuvres of the allied powers um, have huge consequences, huge uh, unforeseen consequences on the ground um, that generally tend to escape the notice um, of the the main kind of um, historiography of of the First World War. Um, And the idea that the the repercussions from the war uh, went on and on and on. Uh, also, again, tends tends to be overlooked. So, this is why on this podcast I like to try to really bring these things into focus so we can talk about them. So, if you are listening and enjoying, there is new exciting content on the Explaining History uh, Patreon page. Find us on Patreon. Um, I'm talking on Mondays about um, uh, matters of current affairs uh, in the Monday review. And on Tuesdays, I'm uploading um, essay how-tos and study how-tos and kind of academic thinking how-tos to really take, if you're studying or writing history, uh, to take what you're doing to the next level. So, check us out, subscribe to Patreon, support the podcast, and there's a a whole bunch of free stuff, um, and there'll be more to come. So, thank you very much everybody, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best, thanks, bye-bye.